Please be aware that this podcast contains disclosures of sexual abuse. The Abuse in Religious Context Project has an information and support resource which you can find at airs, A-I-R-S, at kent.ac.uk. Welcome to the Shiloh podcast. This episode is part of a series we're doing in conjunction with the Abuse in Religious Context project, a major academic project in the UK which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It's looking at the particular factors that allow and facilitate abuse to occur within religious settings. And it's also exploring the ways in which victims and survivors might resist and report abuse or begin to find healing from it, from both within and outside the religious settings in which the abuse occurred. Today, I'm joined by Ramanara Chowdhury and Farooq Muller to discuss their work within Muslim communities in the UK. Ramanara is a chartered psychologist and senior lecturer in forensic psychology at Nottingham Trent University. She completed her PhD exploring domestic violence and abuse in the UK Muslim population at Brunel University in London. And Farouk Muller is an imam, he's a chaplain at the Nottinghamshire Health Trust based in Leicester, and he's a consultant for the Strengthening Faith Institutions organisation. And I'm going to ask you both just to very briefly just tell us a little bit about your work, starting with you, Ramanara. Hi, thank you so much. Welcome, thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Rosie. Um, So yeah, in terms of my sort of um, academic research, um, there's sort of three main areas that I focus on, uh, domestic violence and abuse being one of those, spiritual abuse being the second, and then forensic mental health. So thinking about people's experiences of the criminal justice system as a whole. Um, within all of this research, what I'm the, the sort of golden thread, if you like, is um, experiences based around intersectionality and also notions of holistic well-being. What is that to different communities and how does that kind of manifest and how can we kind of support people towards that within these three different areas? Can you just say a little bit when you talk about intersectionality, just just explain that a little bit. So intersectionality looks at things like race, gender, um, sexuality, um, uh, religion. So those kind of markers of a person's identity, which means that their experiences in life potentially are impacted by those uh, intersectional factors. So really thinking about what what does that mean for their lived reality? Lovely. Um, Farouk, tell me about your work. So I work as a sessional chaplain for the Nottinghamshire Healthcare Trust, which includes Rampton High Secure Psychiatric Hospitals. So I work there in in a capacity as as an imam, as a Muslim chaplain. So my role is basically to lead the religious services and also to offer pastoral uh, kind of care and counselling from a faith perspective to the patients that are there within the trust. I also work as a consultant for Strengthening Faith Institutions. So we work around the country working with mosques, and other faith institutions, and we deliver training on safeguarding to imams and madrasa teachers. So that's what I do with strengthening the and, and you do that across religious traditions, don't you? But and particularly for sort of, I suppose, in the UK, minority religions. So um, religions yeah. which perhaps don't have those supports within yeah. their wider institutional setups. Yeah. So we don't engage with the Church of England because we we, we accept that. They are well found, uh, well funded, and they have a nice umbrella organisation. Yes, yeah, so you are right. We work with the harder to reach religious organisations. 
So let's talk a little bit about um, the current state of research into abuse in Muslim communities. And, and you've already indicated we might be talking about a, a, a different and overlapping abuse, sort of spiritual, physical, domestic, sexual. Um, I mean, how much research has been done into abuse within religious communities? So there has been quite a bit of research done into different communities but the one thing that I've kind of noticed across academia is a lot of that research tends to focus on ethnic groups as opposed to religious groups. Obviously, we know within the church context, that's probably the most prominent group in terms of research and statistics and what we know purely because of the, the historical kind of background. But in terms of other faith groups, there's very little in terms of actually who are the different faith groups, what do they look like and what's happening in those faith groups. Um, when you have research that's done on ethnic groups, then what you're doing is you're you're kind of combining all the different groups together. So you don't get that nuanced understanding. Um, so that, that's really problematic. However, alongside that, um, I have seen, actually, we've both seen, there's there's been a lot of activism at the grassroots. So a lot of people who are, are recognising that these issues exist, that something needs to be done about it. And they've, you know, set, they've set up um, uh, community-based organisations and really trying to do something to create that change. I guess the final kind of point is that it's a it's a very sensitive topic, so it does require a very kind of sensitive approach as well. You, you're both, I, I would say, you're both kind of activist researchers as well as academics, aren't aren't you? I suppose. What would help you from academic researchers? What sort of research do you think would really help you do your work? Yes, you're right. We've done the activism side. We hold a lot of um, grassroots uh, community based workshops. Um, and alongside that, we've been doing the research. The thing that's helped us to do the research has been the community engagement. If we didn't do that community engagement, actually, we wouldn't be able to do the research. So it's almost like you can't you can't go in, a, 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 you can't do a top down approach, you need to do a bottom up approach, really, because it's about you've got to build trust, you've got to, you know, people need to recognise who you are, they need to understand what's your purpose, what's your objective. If they're from a community that's already stigmatised and marginalised, are you going to contribute to that? Or actually, are you there to support them and help them? So there's lots of different things kind of happening. Um, so being engaged at the community level really helps to do, to facilitate that academic engagement. Is there a problem with sort of general whiteness of academia that that that, that um, people who might um, be respondents to your research don't recognise themselves in in the potential researchers? I mean, yeah, we know across the board there's definitely an underrepresentation of minority groups in lots of sectors, not just academia. To be fair to academia, there is a lot of effort happening across different institutions um, to try and decrease that gap. I think in terms of our participants, the the key thing is, yes, they need to be able to recognise themselves within within the researchers, um, but also they want people who can understand where they're coming from. They want people who will already know their identity, so that they don't have to come and say, "This is me. This is what. My, this is my identity. This is how I function." Be it based on X, Y, and Z. They want someone who already understands that, so that actually what they can discuss with you are the real issues, rather than having to explain their identity. Um, I mean, Farouk, as an imam, you know, working with congregations and communities, I mean, Romana has already sort of touched on the sort of sensitive area of the research. But do you, do you 
come across resistance to the idea that that um, you need to research into these areas? Or do you get people saying, please, please do it. We really need you to do it. I mean, I've got a mixture of both. So there are there have been some imams and some community activists and some influential people within the community who have kind of tried to dissuade me from continuing with this research. And their rationale was that, look at all the other challenges that the Muslim community are facing. Why you want to add another layer of another challenge? But then there are others who kind of encourage us and say, this is long overdue, etc. And we really appreciate. So I've had mixed responses. So there's some people who would fear that if if you expose or, or talk about abuse within the Muslim communities, you might be feeding into a general sort of um, Islamophobic culture, which will just make it harder for Muslims everywhere. Is that is that what the people are saying? Yes, that is their concern, that actually you'll be adding more fuel to the fire and, and maybe the possibly the war on terror and prevent, etc. All of these might be now might be targeting the Muslims more if you expose such you know incidents. So that was a concern that some people had. Well, we're talking about the sort of research that's necessary, and we'll come to research that the two of you did in a moment. I mean, you, you've got you've got quantitative research which might try and um, illustrate the extent of the problem, or you've got qualitative deep down into the experience of a few individuals. Um, have you got a, a sense of which is the, which is the most important? And I know it's a tough question in a way because they feed each other. But I mean, have you have you got a sense about what you feel it's really important to find out at the moment, Ramanara? So, so yeah, it's a really interesting question. I I'm not sure that we can make a comparison between the two approaches. It really has to be about what's the topic that we're looking at, and not just the topic, but actually what's the lived reality of that topic of that of that um, subject area. What does it mean for people? So, just from a kind of psychosocial perspective, um, this is like we said, this is such a sensitive area of research. So, therefore, um, my kind of um, initial thinking is that it's really important to gain an understanding of what's going on for people, what are their experiences, and that's obviously done through um, qualitative research. But what that also does is it means that you ca- you have the opportunity to start building up trust. Um, and speaking to people and understanding people first. And I think that is really important within this type of research. The reality is that sometimes numbers can actually obscure that kind of re- lived reality. Oh, but when you're... why? Why do numbers ex- obscure that? So, so when you are thinking about starting to tackle this issue and how do we address it, then you need that data. That qualitative um, data is really, really important. So when you're talking about prevalence, what forms of abuse, who's been affected, you know, who's perpetrating, what's the impact, and essentially how do we create change for everyone, then you need that qualitative data. But you're not going to get any of that data unless you've kind of built up your integrity in the field. That's what qualitative research tends to allow. I suppose in terms of getting funding, do you need to demonstrate to funders we know there's a problem. And that's where the sort of quantitative side of things might be really helpful if you can demonstrate that and then you can do the deep dive in. Yes, but it might also work the other way around. It might be we know there's a problem, but people aren't able to come forward. And we've got a small study here to say, actually, people are suffering in silence, but they don't feel safe enough to come forward. So you might use the qualitative research to actually make your case. Right. And the two of you 
um, worked on a qualitative analysis of the experiences of Muslim victims abused by religious authority figures. It was a, it was a very small sample you had of just six respondents. And you wrote that paper um, with Belinda Winder and Nicholas Bagdon. So you had two Muslims and two non-Muslims on this paper. And, and Farouk, I wonder why or why that was useful. I think, you know, it brought a degree of impartiality, you know, and, uh, and and then the academic rigor was there when we had two, you know, senior researchers on board with a very sensitive topic, which is quite taboo within the Muslim community. And I think it was the first attempt uh, of a research of this kind in this country that I'm aware of. So I think to have this kind of team with us, you know, who can critically look at everybody, I think that was beneficial. Just to add to that, there's obviously a lot of discussion in um, academia generally about insider research and how potentially insiders can introduce bias into the data, into the analysis, into the write-up. Certainly one of the things we found through doing this research is that it was really important to have insiders, people who already understood those nuances, people who already understood what does someone mean when they say a certain phrase or make reference to something that's more cultural or religious kind of base. So that was really important. But equally, as Farouk said as well, is it's important to balance that um, and to have that academic rigor as well, and to also have individuals who could question you and say, well, what does that mean, or what's the significance of that, and have you read too much into that or too little into that? So actually, those discussions ensured that the research was really robust. Farouk, just tell me um, briefly what this research was looking at. So it was looking at the impact on the faith of Muslim children who are now adults who had been sexually abused by a person in a, in a position of religious authority, whether an imam or a madrasa teacher, etc., to look at specifically that kind of target group. And the impact specifically on their faith? Or... Yeah, because we, we wanted to see whether there was a difference between being abused by a stranger or a family member and by somebody in a person of religious authority whom that child might have considered as somebody acting on behalf of God and to see whether the impact was similar or different. And um, and the abuse didn't necessarily happen in this country, but it, it may have it may have happened elsewhere as well. Is, is that right? That is correct. Yes. Okay. So now um, I will reveal that you, as well as being one of the researchers, you were one of the participants, one of the respondents in the research. Ramanara, tell me how that worked, having somebody writing alongside with you who was also a respondent. Yeah, so that was that was really interesting. We obviously had to be quite careful about um, some aspects of it. We had to ensure that um, Farouk and the rest of the team as well, because it is it's a very heavy going subject. Um, just making sure he's okay all the way through the processes, checking in with him both prior to and after interviews, and even through the analysis. I noticed um, within my own research, it's not just when you're conducting the research; it's when you're listening to the transcripts afterwards, when you're analysing the data. A lot more tends to settle onto your mind, and and you reflect a bit deeper as well. Um, so yeah, it was very important to look after him throughout that process. Um, but also to get his insight onto, say, as an imam, for example, obviously some of the um, theological kind of aspects, some of the examples in in that go a bit deeper into the faith um, to get his perspectives. But then for us as researchers to bring in the psychosocial perspective and really get that kind of holistic balance in terms of what's happened and, and trying to understand that and then convey that more broadly. Uh, Farouk, I don't know if you'd be willing just to very briefly describe kind of abuse that you suffered and then talk about the impact of that on your faith. So, I mean, I can, as far as I can remember, I have been abused four times now in my life. Uh, the first time was when I was about 11, 12 years old, that a relative of ours used to come from overseas. <clears throat> 
And initially it was like this grooming, touching, inappropriate touching, etc. And then on one occasion he, he, he did rape me. And so that continued over a, an, over a number of years as and when he visited. The second time I was abused was in a mosque by a religious figure, uh, which was only inappropriate touching, touching, but it was actually quite traumatic for me at the time to see that same person then going on to the pulpit and deliver to our lecture. And there were two other occasions where there was kind of also in a mosque and in a seminary where I was abused by inappropriate touching by adults who were from a religious kind of background. But as I said, the rape was the most significant part of my abuse, but that happened at a young age. And that person is now in charge of a seminary abroad. And uh, when I went to report it to a person who is in charge of that seminary, it was a response that actually shocked me and that triggered the, the initial kind of research. So when I went to inform him that I had been abused by this person, I'm feeling that maybe he might be abusing others. He turned back and said that you should actually, you know, repent. You should actually give charity, sadaqah, and you should basically forget about it. So that response shocked me more than anything else. In fact, it probably shocked me more than the the, the initial kind of uh, abuse itself. That such a senior influential cleric, he kind of just dismissed the victim and let the perpetrator carry on running a seminary. And this is the background of the research. This is when I approached. Dr. Belinda, and then the research started. You disclosed that abuse as part of this project. Um, how did that help, or did it help, other respondents in, in the survey, or uh, other people? Has that helped other people disclose abuse, the fact that you shared your experiences and, and that you were a religious leader yourself? I think we definitely, we won three or four of the participants when I had disclosed to them that I was also a respondent and I had also been abused, it probably gave them a degree of confidence <clears throat> that they could share their abuse, you know, in a, in a safe place. So whilst we were doing the research, there were a lot of other kind of potential participants that I came across, but they were not willing to go on record. And I have about at least 100 cases of Muslims who have been sexually abused, but have not come forward for whatever reasons. So despite the small number of people coming forward and, you know, putting their name and being interviewed, there were many others that I came across informally who liked the research, but they did not want their names to be put onto the research and did not want to be formally interviewed. Right, but they may be gaining support from you by the fact that you you disclosed. They felt able at least to disclose to you. Uh, Ramanara. Yeah, just to just to add that add to that from my perspective as a researcher, it was really valuable to have Farouk there because of his dual role. So seeing him as someone, a person with a religious authority, um, and yet also a victim, actually for a lot of victims, this was this I think this really contributed to part of their healing. The idea that actually, even as a religious authority, a religious leader, you're not exempt from that potentially. You could you could also be a victim. But also it helps to build up some of that trust because obviously trust is one of the things that would have been fractured if they had, um, for those who had experienced abuse by those holding positions of religious authority. So that dual kind of role really helped people to um, firstly come forward for the research, but also then deal with the aftermath, the effect of, of that research and the trauma with that. 
And then coupled with that was the idea that it was research, it was being done in a safe space, it wasn't for community gossip, so to speak. It was with a purpose, it still holds a purpose, and it's got a long term vision as well. This idea that, okay, maybe I'm not ever going to be able to speak out publicly, maybe I'm not going to ever have a public kind of platform, but someone out there might. Um, benefit in the long term and hopefully we will prevent um, the possibility of future victims as well. Can we talk a little bit about the the factors that that make it possible for religious leaders to carry out abuse? I mean um, um, and the factors that that also mean that they feel able to blame the victim when they're, they're called out on it but but what's what's going on within madrasas or mosques or or other communities, which mean that religious leaders are able to think they can get away with it? So this is something really, um, it's not specific to religious leaders. When you look at abuse across the board, it's the idea of there being the opportunity, there being the access. Um, You've already got a relationship. I mean, we know that most abuse is uh, carried about someone who is familiar to the the person, the victim. So it's really about those spaces that people assume will be safe. So therefore, you naturally kind of let your guard down. And then unfortunately, that's taken advantage of in different ways. And then second to that is this idea of, is there any kind of accountability structure? Now, in organisations, you'd hope there would be. But if you've got faith organisations that don't have an overarching accountability structure like the church, for example, then that makes it more difficult. Even and it, We've seen, obviously, in the church example that even when you do have these structures, it can still be brushed under the carpet. So really, you've got lots of things parallel to each other that need to be worked on collectively, the cultures, the, the accountability, the kind of foundations on which organisations are built on but also how people are um, willing, whether people are willing to address these topics and recognising that people have real concerns about these sensitive topics because it it goes beyond just, you know, a criminal offence. You're talking about communities, individuals, their identities, their entire lives are built upon this identity. So then if that becomes fractured and these are, you're talking about people who are potentially victims who are maybe um, on on the sideline part of the community, but they also are impacted. So it's a lot going on. Are there not some factors which are sort of, if not unique to religious communities, um, very pertinent in religious communities? I mean, I'm just thinking about the sort of culture of deference around religious leaders, for example. That, you know, challenging a religious leader, um, Farouk, is something that takes a lot of guts to do. So whilst doing some research on my trips to India and Pakistan, I came across a term which was called illatul mashaik. Now, illatul mashaik means that if a person in a religious authority was to kind of commit this type of acts, then it's somehow exempt from accountability. So that came out actually as a shock for me. I don't know. It was just used, you know, culturally within by certain scholars. That, that and I, I met a number of victims in India, Pakistan also, and they said it was unfortunately quite common there in those seminaries there. But then they coined out this term illatul mashaik that actually if the sheikh does it or if the religious figure does it, then it's okay somehow. And that was actually kind of difficult for me to kind of accept, you know, knowing the impact and the gravity of the offense, even from within the scriptures. And it was almost like they're they're thinking of a term just to kind of justify because they didn't have any answers. It's not a scriptural term then? It's not a scriptural term, it's just, just lately. But it was something that, that they actually had a term to kind of justify maybe 
you know, the rationale behind a religious figure committing this type of acts. A religious leader might be saying, well, I'm, I'm do- particularly I suppose if it's physical abuse, you know, I'm doing this for your good. This is part of spiritual discipline or something like that. So physical abuse, I can maybe, you know, not justify, but understand to an extent, but not sexual abuse. So this was specifically around sexual abuse that they were using this term in that context. Can you give me an example of where you've heard sacred texts being used against survivors? So, yeah, I think there were there were kind of two things going on. There was there was the direct use of scripture, but also the indirect use of scripture and maybe focusing more on principles or um, ethics of, of the faith. So with the direct use of scripture, as, as Farouk has mentioned, some of that related to how those who hold positions of re- authority, religious authority are viewed and held up on a pedestal. We, we, we're going to talk about that in our second paper that's, um, that we're currently writing. This idea that the moment you hold that person on a pedestal, they become immune to accountability. And then that means actually there's there's nowhere safe. You're you're never going to be able to speak out firstly and then gain justice secondly. The second area in terms of um, the misuse of sort of faith principles, things like forgiveness, um, overlooking your faults, not talking about sins in public, um, those kind of concepts are really kind of magnified and taken out of context. That all of those concepts have certain regulations, have certain boundaries around them. They have um, uh, yeah, so they have a, a boundary kind of framework within which they operate. Anything out of that boundary, it doesn't apply. So when you're causing harm to a person, it immediately those boundaries do not apply anymore because you've fallen out of the scope of what is considered to be normal and acceptable. Um, but those kind of concepts tend to be exploited and misused. And obviously that just perpetuates the abuse and it allows those spaces to continue to exist. So regulations and rules which um, in their Proper contexts are, you know, completely understandable. Like, you know, we don't gossip, we don't talk badly of people, and so on. When taken out of context, they can be used as a silencing mechanism. Yeah, and just to give you an example, so one of the texts that was used against me when I started speaking informally about this type of abuse within certain clerics was man adali waliyan fakad adan harb. Whoever becomes an enemy of a man of God, then God will engage war with that human being. So you live in that constant fear that. Are you now going to engage God in war? So this was a silencing tactic. The other text that people use is Man satara musliman satara that whoever conceals a fault of another Muslim, then God will conceal his fault in this world and in the hereafter. But actually what Rahmanara said, actually, this is about informal gossip. It's not about, uh, you know, doing harm and, and abuse. That actually goes. Then, then you have other verses that we can we can use to kind of give an opportunity for the victims to speak out. So this is where the contextualization needs to take place. So both those examples that you gave are they Quranic examples? No, they are, they are prophetic traditions. They are prophetic traditions. The hadith. Hadith. They hadith. They hadith. Yeah. 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 We've talked about placing religious leaders on a pedestal and then we've we've started to talk about the Quran and the Hadith haven't we I I just wonder Ramanara in your work with victim survivors have you come across examples where scripture the Quran or the Hadith have been able to be used as as a tool of healing Mm. as as a way of contrasting it with um, the scriptures being sort of weaponized against victims and survivors so essentially, that's what we do when we engage with the grassroots. Um, and Farouk in particular focuses on this, looking at all the alternative verses uh, that talk about accountability, that talk about justice, that talk about prevention of harm. 
and we bring all of that. And we also look into this idea of what does it actually mean to have faith, to have belief? Is it about obedience to a person or is it um, uh, about obedience to a higher entity? And what does that mean for the lived reality? So certainly from a, uh, from a perspective of engaging at the grassroots, that is what we do. We've also seen in the community um, various efforts where people are also trying to combat the issue by using scripture. Um, so, for example, there's, um, there's a website called In, In Sheikh's Clothing, um, where the person behind the website, they use the scripture, they use the faith tradition to try and address some of these issues. And I think that is the strongest way because... The most pertinent thing about spiritual-based abuse is the idea that your faith is intertwined with the abuse and it becomes so intertwined that you can't separate it out from the abuse. And essentially part of the healing, what we've seen in our research, the healing is about the separation so that you can still hold on to your faith identity, but you also understand that the abuse is something separate and it's wrong. And therefore you don't have to be denied of your faith if that's what you still want to follow. Um, so that's a really key factor in terms of that recovery process. I'm interested, you say, if, if that's what you still want to follow. I mean, in your experience, do people manage to stay within the faith or what proportion of them will just walk away because it's too bound so up? Yeah, what we've seen so far is um, initially there is a there is a period of time in their lives. And sometimes that can be quite extensive. You know, for some people, it might be up to 20 years plus, you know, significant periods of time where they do detach from their faith and not just detach, but actually go the complete opposite side. But when you look at that, you can see that that's that's a trauma response, basically. And it's because the uh, abuse has become intertwined with their faith. But you also see that that trauma is actually exacerbated because they want to hold on to their faith, but they don't know how to do that without seeing the abuse mixed in with it. So eventually what we found in our research is that eventually people return to their faith and are able to um, extract it from the abuse and then therefore make sense of it and use their faith as a protective kind of factor. But in the interim, that damage that's caused is it's absolutely phenomenal. But I think there might be, I don't know, Farouk, there might be cases where people also do continue to reject and, and carry on down, down that route. Yeah, I mean, there are people that I have known that who have been abused, kind of a disillusioned with their faith. I mean, I went through the same process myself. And even after visiting many senior clerics from this country and overseas, who could not actually give me the thing that I was looking for, who actually made my condition even worse. Ironically, it was a non-Muslim psychologist with one sentence that kind of almost started my healing process. And he said, you know, go home and revisit your own scripture. So by scripturally empowering myself, that was the start of my recovery and coping mechanisms. So when I was on the brink on suicide, you know, this is what I, the response I got from a non-Muslim psychologist. And, and can you remember a particular part of the scripture that you went and revisited and thought, yes, I can stay here. So when the Quran talks about hypocrites, hypocrites, you know, at the time of the prophet and even people of people who are following earlier scriptures, and the Quran gives us case studies of people who have done similar things and who are condemned by God, at least I realize that these actions have happened historically and they could happen today. And the fact that God has condemned those actions at least made me feel a bit reassured that actually this is something that is condemned by the creator itself. Thank you. Um, but I want to just talk a little bit about um, the Quranic and Hadithic approaches to um, or, or ways in which the Quran or Hadith are sort of used in 
either justifying or challenging abuse. And I'm wondering how much discussion there is, Ramanara, in Muslim communities about the ways in which scripture can be used or misused in this context. So yeah, whilst there's not been much of a platform for survivors to come forward previously, um, that's meant no one can speak about anything. And obviously the idea of speaking about scripture, the holy book, um, in a negative way is obviously um, really frowned upon. But actually those people aren't talking about scripture and holy book. They're talking about how that was used against them in order to take advantage of them and to abuse them. What we've seen lately is that the research certainly the conversations we've had has encouraged more and more people to feel that this is something that's okay to talk about because I'm not um, I'm not um, speaking badly about the scripture I'm talking about the people that have misused that in order to then abuse me what we've also seen parallel to that as I mentioned is this idea of more and more community level discussions happening about how that scripture can be used to challenge abuse and to challenge Um, the creation and maintenance of spaces in which abuse can continue. So that website in Sheikh's Clothing, for example, being one of those. Internationally, there's a lot more happening. I think some countries are a bit more advanced in terms of uh, 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 dealing and addressing this issue. But it is very much um, at the grassroots, uh, more activism kind of level. In terms of the academic aspect, I think there's still a lot of research to be done. Um, because we do need to we do need to understand what's going on in order to be able to properly address it and to recognise the sensitivities in order to protect victims as well. Drawing to a close a little bit, but I, mean, I just wonder if if there's well, what do you feel is the most important things that need to be researched now? What, what's what's the next really important piece of work that needs to be done in this area? To be honest, I think we've only just started. I mean, there, when we when we started, certainly there was no other literature in the Muslim field that we could go to. Now there's a little bit more, not much. Um, there are a few people who are starting PhDs, starting to look at this in a bit more detail. So actually, we, we're still at the very start of really unpacking this and beginning to understand this. But I guess in terms of our overall kind of objective, it's always been about this idea of putting the victim first, creating cultures of change at the grassroots so that we are preventing future victims. Farouk, what do you feel is really important to look at now? I think the fact that I think we have kind of moved away from this space where people did not believe you to a place where at least some people are believing you and then and, and, and the, the amount of case studies that I am coming across informally within the community suggests that there are many more victims out there who have not been able to express or articulate their grievances for want you know, of a safe space, etc. And they're living in this kind of constant fear that maybe they might be doing harm to their relationship with God and their religion. And we're actually scripturally empowering them and helping them come out might help to mitigate this. Do you ever feel, Ramanara, that there's, a, there's almost a danger that, that if you do the research and there are no sort of sensitive support services available, that you're, you're, you're adding to a problem rather than dealing yeah. with it? Yeah, that's been a real issue that we've had to consider, this idea of, because remember, some of these communities traditionally are communities that have had research done upon them, and that's all they know. People have come in and poked and prodded and, and then gone away, basically. 
So that, that's been a real concern, this idea that there still are no services that we can refer people to. So what we've tried to do is within our research is to build in the aftercare, so have continued contact with participants, ensure that they're okay. Um, but the feedback that we've had from those who have taken part in the research is the idea that actually the research, because it's a safe space, because it protects their identity, it contributes to their healing, is part of their healing journey. Um, for some people, it won't be appropriate, won't be suitable. They won't feel comfortable engaging in it, and that's fine. For other people, they don't want any support. They actually just want to get on with their lives. And again, that's fine as well. But for those who need that, actually, the, the research has worked positively. But it is still, it's still problematic. And, and again, as we said, one of the end, end kind of products, if you like, is this idea of creating tailored services that work in conjunction, not just with um, not just with psychology, but actually also theology. How does theology fit into psychology? How does psychology fit into theology? How can we have that holistic kind of approach to support people in their healing? Well, I think we could go on talking for a very long time, but that's a good place to end, I think, Ramanara. And I'd really like to thank you and Farouk for joining me for this podcast. And I wish you well in all your future work endeavours. Thank you so much. Thank you.